Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Stevie Lang, a union organizer, BDSM educator, and friend of the pod out of Australia. We talk about being trans and polyamorous without being woke, the place of spirituality on the left, and how socialism will help single parents. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Toute la journée, man, it goes. Okay, great. Yeah, we're here with our friend Stevie. Yeah, welcome to fucking canceled, Stevie. Hey, nice to be here. <laughs> so yeah, um, we're here with our friend Stevie Lang. Um, Stevie, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, where do I start? You know, I actually hate these questions, and there's a reason that I hate them, but it's very relevant to fucking canceled. Because like, I have this like, like A-grade identity list that I could oh, like yes. share. Yeah. Like, I could just be like, yeah, so I'm, like, a transgender, transmasculine, non-binary, polyamorous. Like, I could just, like, list all these things <laughs> that are, like, legitimately actually true about me. Um, and that is how a lot of people introduce themselves. But I, like, I don't like that because I feel like it, I don't know. So I live in Australia um, <laughs> where we don't have Clementines. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I am just in my 30s. I've had, like, a kind of weird millennial life, but it's had, like, most of the main themes of, you know, that experience, search for meaning, a lot of alienation, real hard time finding a way of, like, making money in a secure and ongoing way. Um, I have a kid who's five. I have two partners. Um, and I'm a union organiser. Uh, and when I'm not doing that, I'm still working on my PhD. Um, and my PhD topic is about basically how judges make decisions when they're deciding to incarcerate mothers, um, and how like things like care and ideas about mothering factor into that. Um, and when I'm not doing all of those things, which is like a tiny sliver of my existence, uh, sometimes I'm getting my kink on, um, (laughs) and... Sometimes I'm being a pain in the ass on Instagram. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. We met Stevie originally through Instagram. So yeah. Um, thank you for introducing yourself to our listeners. So to start, we wanted to ask you, what does it actually mean to be a union organizer? I love this question because it's really like centering <laughs> me and making me like think about what it is that I do. Um, so <laughs> Jane McAlevey, who's like a really successful union organizer um, in the US, um, has like this amazing definition of like what organizing is that I like love and I try to I try to do. Um, and she talks about organizers as people who raise expectations. So I really see my job as being about getting people in a specific workplace, right? Like in a specific defined constituency and workplace. Um, to kind of understand the real nature of like what's going on at work, which, you know, we're, we're all in agreement about what that is. It's like exploitation, alienation, um, you know, like just generally life is being made more miserable than it needs to be in basically every workplace anywhere. Um, 
and then to raise people's expectations that that could change and that the tool for that changing is them like coming together and finding collective solutions. So it's sort of all of those things. It's like the political education side of things. It's the like relationship building side of things. And it's the like actual, you know, creation of like structures and frameworks for people to like build solidarity with them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so because we love identity and identitarianism, uh, we wanted to ask you, um, how does your experience of being trans play out in a union context? But especially we wanted to ask this sort of like, because the union or like a lot of your union work seems to be sort of like outside what we call the nexus, you know, kind of like outside yeah. social justice land. And we were just wondering, yeah, what's it like to be a union organizer who's trans and not in the nexus? Yeah, right. I mean... I definitely think that unions exist outside the nexus um, in the sense that really, like uh, on the most simple level, the power that workers have at work is their power as the majority of people there, right? Like the bosses of like an Amazon warehouse or, you know, a like a fish and chip shop in Australia or whatever, like they can't do the shit that they are selling to their customers themselves with just like management and the boss and the person who owns the deep fryer or the warehouse robots, right? Like they can't do it. That means that the people who work there actually do have power, right? Like this is like, you you both know this, but I think Mm -hmm. that like this really gets lost in the Nexus. Um, I think that some people in the Nexus literally don't know this. So please. Yeah. and so, but, but like, you know, there's like this classic union song, right, about like solidarity forever, that there's power in the workplace, but like, it's literally like, fuck all. This is my like modern translation of solidarity forever. It like, it's like literally nothing if we're not together, because like, you know, one person in the boss's office can be intimidated into doing basically anything, but like 10 people standing together, like can't necessarily be intimidated as easily. And so what that means is you've actually got to find some way of getting those 10 people to stand together. But like, that doesn't look like you know everyone like doing check-ins and like you know somatic breathing exercises and like like that's not what it looks like it looks like you know one of those people is like a fucking racist and you know like this other one is like in some like church that like I've got like super side-eye views about right and like you know two of them are like you know really like good union people but maybe they don't have any time and then like one of them is like you know, thinks that they're a communist, but just like gets in the way of everything and like won't actually participate in collective action because it's never radical enough. And so like, you know, you have to like bring those people together somehow and like find a way of like reminding people like actually who we're fighting is the boss. And, you know, we've got to find some like common platform to stand on. And like, that's, I guess, how I see being trans. Like, I don't think that everyone that I work with as an organizer is like, 100 I, I think some people maybe at this stage don't necessarily know that I'm trans like they don't know what's up there some people do uh some people like fantastically accepting some people are like you know a bit not okay with it um I've like definitely had people uh who don't like me in the union like do <laughs> things that like are not okay um like impersonate me in a meeting in a high-pitched voice I'm like wow yeah I'm like wow I don't know if you're being like homophobic sexist or transphobic right now or like all of them but I could like, <laughs> write like a bomb nexus analysis of this 
but like you know you can't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because like I've got to work with that person. yeah and like you know the thing is that you do and that's like that I think is probably like the the most important point I can make is that like when you're actually working with people to achieve a specific goal against a specific you know person who is exploiting you all like it doesn't really matter that I'm trans people have to work with me because I'm the union organizer and I'm the one who's like going to like you know be able to do specific things in that struggle right Mm -hmm. and like people care about the struggle more than they care about like what genitals I was born with um and I think that as long as you can keep the focus on that you actually can work together with people who like you know don't really share much in common with you and on top of that like I really believe that what I'm doing as a union organizer specifically because I like work in like regional Australia where like you know I don't like see a bunch of trans people walking around here they might exist I don't see them um like I'm I'm putting that in people's reality in a way that it's like actually just there as a fact of life that they have to work with and work Mm -hmm. around and I think that's actually really powerful yeah Um, yeah Yeah. there was a recent Jacobin um talk on the Jacobin show about like race and racism in unions did you see that yeah yeah I did I love that and yeah that's exactly what I'm drawing on here is that like I think that you know like people talk a lot about like these trainings and stuff at work like I don't think that you learn to respect your coworkers like in some like HR training. Like no. you learn to like give a lot of shits about your coworkers and to stand with your coworkers and to see their struggles as your struggles, like on the picket line, not in like something that HR is doing. Exactly. And like, you know, bringing people together to fight together is like, I don't know, like, it's going to start eroding those kinds of, you know, prejudices that are just based on, for a lot of people, just based on ignorance or just based on, you know, not having people like that in their lives, not seeing what the reality of people's lives actually look like. Yeah. Um, and the fastest way people together in a forum where, like, we're not all sitting here talking about how racist everyone is. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah, in a union context, you're coming together towards a common goal that is for everyone's best interest, right? Where And exactly. when it's HR doing it, you're actually being pitted against each other because you're being given more reasons to, like, potentially, like, report each other to the boss or whatever, right? Yeah, snitching on each yeah, other. Yeah, but, and... like, it's less stressful and it, like, erodes solidarity, whereas, like, a union, it's like, yeah, like you're saying, you would get an opportunity to actually, like, get to know people, but you're also struggling together to a common cause, which, yeah, like, builds solidarity. Totally. It's also, like, you know, people don't trust their bosses. No, of course like, not. People literally don't trust their bosses. And so, like, if the boss is coming at you with, like, all of this, like, messaging about, like, how to be a good person in terms, like, like, you're good, maybe the trainer will win you over. Like, maybe the quality of the, like, what happens in that room will be such that, you know, you'll build trust and go with it. But you're starting from, like, negative, like, 100 yeah. when it's your boss who's putting this in front of you. But, you know, when unions are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and, like, Mm -hmm. that is a separate discussion, right? Like, plenty of unions don't do what they're supposed to be doing. Plenty of unions don't build worker power. Plenty of unions don't have, like, actual social orientation. That's definitely a thing that exists. But when a union is doing what it's supposed to be doing, people trust their union. And so if the union brings anti-racism messaging into a context where you're already there because you're doing something in your own interest, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, that is being expanded into a broader political education, then like that's 
that's coming from a source that you trust. Yeah. And like, you know, you talk a lot about attachment theory. Like mm-hmm. you don't learn anything from someone that you don't trust. Yeah. Like, you literally don't. Not. Yeah, exactly. you know, yeah. Yeah. Like the idea of like fear-based learning is like, th- there is no evidence behind that. You know, like the way you learn in like a context that's driven by fear is like not good learning. You well, know? it's like you, you, you might learn something, but it's not what they're trying to teach you, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And like you, you learn, like you might perform compliance, um, to avoid getting into trouble, but you're, you're not actually being transformed on any kind of level because, you know, you're scared. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, in parenting, like the first thing you learn as like a parent who actually has their head screwed on about attachment theory is that like a kid who is like punished for doing something wrong, doesn't learn not to do the thing. They learn to be sneaky. Like they learn to do it better next time. Right. And so like, you know, it's the same thing. If you're, it's common sense. Like, I don't understand how people don't know this, but yeah. <laughs> if you're learning from the person who can literally like take away your house, take away your food, take away your kids' food, take away, you know, like your partner's therapy, take away your health insurance if you yeah. live in whatever like dumpster fire is happening in the US, right? Like, you know, are you going to like learn in a way that's actually meaningful or are no. you just going to like learn to be sneakier about whatever prejudices you previously had? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, so just a bit of a rat. No, I mean, please rant away. Like, love it. Love, love you pulling in attachment theory and all this good stuff. So oh, fucking good. Um, so Stevie, you are the epitome of what we like to call socialism with freaky options. So basically, what we mean <laughs> basically what we mean by that. <laughs> I love that you're laughing at that. It's like, you know. I want a t-shirt. <laughs> like, can you make some, like, fucking canceled match? And could that be, like, what it's Socialism with freaky options, yeah. Yo, yeah because, like, because, like, you know, basically, like, on the one hand, you know, you have, like, the nexus. And in the nexus, like, it's, like, super normal that, like, everybody's queer and trans. And, like, everybody's, like, polyamorous and, like, BDSM. And there's, like group sex going on and who knows what people are doing right like there's lots of that there's lots of that going on it's like totally normal but like nobody knows about socialism and like nobody has a class Mm -hmm. analysis in any kind of way and then you go to like more like whatever like brochalist kind of spaces where they might sort of make fun of like woke culture and stuff but like it's like super normy and often they make fun of like all of that freaky shit like being like whatever polyamorous and bdsm and blah 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 um and so, yeah, it's, like, hard to find that nice, fun middle ground of, like, you know, an economic analysis, but also maybe getting tied to a wall, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, we just wanted to ask you, why does socialism need freaky options? And why do freaks need socialism? <laughs> Okay, so, like, just aside, so, like, I used to call my partner Ona, like, that was, like, the, like the kid yeah. title that, like, yeah. we had, um, and, like, <laughs> I got, like, so much socialist joy out of having, like, a consensual owner property relationship, <laughs> where, like, you know, like, <laughs> um, because, you know, like, the, like, the inherent dimension of property is that, like it's it's not consenting to being like passed around the right anyway whatever um <laughs> aside. Uh, 
Yeah, look, I think that the, the trend you're describing, I'm going to like take it in a different different direction if you don't okay. mind. Yep, yeah, um, do. I just feel like, I don't know if it's an internet trend. I've grown up with the internet. Like I haven't had a political reality that hasn't had internet in it. Um, I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's just like the general fact that like fucking no one in the society gets like a legitimate, proper, secure, attached start, basically, because mm-hmm. of just how we've set things up. But I think that so often the way we do politics is primarily um, about like who we're not and who we don't want to be mm. rather than who we are and what we're affirming. I think that happens for a couple of reasons. One is like, there was a class war in the 20th century, right? Like that happened and we lost, like the majority lost, like we lost really badly. And basically like since the 60s and 70s, you know, there has been like all of these attempts like grapple with, well, what does resistance look like if we can't actually fight people that are oppressing us in the streets and seize power? And so Mm -hmm. you get all these like micro forms of resistance. Um, And, you know, like I fell into this trap, like, you know, thinking that like, I'm going to like, subvert capitalism by being polyamorous or whatever I like, mm-hmm. literally have paper out that basically says that um and like you know that that's a real problem um because I don't think we're thinking about answers to that question and so you know you get like I think the nexus comes out of that you know mm-hmm. it's like all of these like different ways of doing stuff that you functionally can do within like neoliberal hegemony like you you can you know like have sexual relationships or romantic relationships that kind of like do weird things with like the dominant logics out there you can like express your gender and sexuality in ways that like undermine things but this is all happening on this like really individual level um and then you know because it's really quite ineffective the only way that you can sort of maintain your energy around that stuff because like you can do polyamory and have a great analysis about how it's like anti-capitalist and you know against the neoliberal logic around like the nuclear family and all that stuff but like you're not actually neoliberalism is just like out there Uh pretty fine you know like your individual efforts are not really impacting it and so I think that that just leads people into this way of doing politics it's all about like who you're not and fighting laterally rather than you know looking up and like actually taking the struggle to the people who have more power than us um and I think you see that in like you know these like socialist spaces where people like making fun of queers and making fun Mm -hmm. you know and because like what they're doing is ineffective so it's like well who's the easiest person I can like Mm -hmm. punch to the side and you see it in the nexus as well you know it's like I'm just gonna like beat up on some like disabled um you know guy who dropped out of school uh because he happens to be cis and white right Right. (laughs) like um and I know if I can just keep ranting about this for one more minute and then like no, feel like Jay wants to say something. No, no. But um Gordon Newfeld, who's like a, a he writes about parenting, um, but he's like a an attachment theory sort of one of those like expert attachment theory type people. He says this really brilliant thing about like how people who didn't get secure attached relationships as a young person will often like form their attachments with their peers rather than mm. with you know their like parents right right and one of the the things that happens to people who form their primary attachments with their peers rather than with like a trustworthy caregiver is that they can't like directly attach to their peers because like that requires being too vulnerable for that situation right mm-hmm. like you can't be that vulnerable with like someone who is not actually like empowered over you to give you 
real care. So instead, what he describes is that people back into their attachments by hating the same person. So they form an attachment by like basically like mutually shitting on this like outside, you know, thing, and then like kind of end up in this attached kind of state. But the only substance of it is who we really like mutually don't like. And I just think if you look at how people in our generation do politics, you just see that, you know, Uh like people struggle so hard to like actually assert who they are or what they want or what the future should look like. It's one of the reasons I find like your Instagram, Jay, like so refreshing because you actually do that. Um, But, you know, most people aren't asserting like, I think we should have this instead. They're like just kind of shitting on things and often they're not even shitting on the real systems that are like upholding the shit show that we live in yeah totally that's so true um some of the education work that you do stevie is about consent um and it's really interesting stuff too can you talk about your ideas about how the model of consent that's often championed within the nexus uh sometimes misses the mark yeah, sure. Um, I might have to tell some, like, personal, like, narrative to, like, explain this, but I, like, as a lot of people who have, like, a, you know, trauma history, like, my early 20s were just, like, full of, like, really, like, not great, you know, sexual experiences. Um, and there was a certain point in my life where, like, a lot had started turning around for me, um, and I was starting to, like, be okay with who I was in terms of kink, um, and I met this person who I was, like, having a sort of like, you know, kink sexual kind of relationship with. And this person was from the States and they had like learned at the party that had initially come up with the concept of enthusiastic consent, basically. Like they had been okay. part of that like world. And the whole idea of enthusiastic consent, that the way that like this person practiced it was like asking all these questions, mm-hmm. like, you know, can I touch you here? Do you like that? Can I like this really like engaged and in sort of um involved like way of like verbally checking in mm-hmm. at every step throughout the process? And like I loved that. And like I actually like consider that like I just write off all the other sexual experiences I'm like that was like my sexual debut like that was it because like that was the first time I was actually like meaningfully consenting and like for a while I got like really into this like enthusiastic consent model and like this idea that like we could just like avoid any and all consent problems by just like checking in and asking enough and like you know, of course, it was like all kind of mixed in with the trauma and the feelings that I had about what had previously happened to me. And so I became like a bit of a zealot about this stuff. Okay. Right. Um, and then I started topping. Um, <laughs> no, it's really not that simple. A couple of things, a couple of things happened. One was that I got into relationship. Okay, we just need to like have a break to laugh. <laughs> like one of the things that happened was like I got into ongoing relationships, right? Like I got into relationships right. where it was suddenly fucking weird to be like sitting in front of the TV being like, oi, can I touch your thigh? Or yeah. like watching Netflix. I've touched this person's thigh like 50 times and like we're all down with it and it's fine. And I was like, yeah. okay, like this you know, so then I started like being like, okay, maybe like enthusiastic consent is like just for um like new sexual encounters. Um, and then like I changed my gender presentation 
And in that context, both people started expecting different things of me in those right. contexts, like it, almost immediately. Um, and I started like, you know, participating in kink as a top rather than just as a bottom or a submissive. Um, and that like just really changed my whole view of like where the power is in BDSM and in sexual encounters overall. Um, and part of what I realized is that when you are putting yourself in the position where you're, you're topping someone, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do that I like to be topped for, like the stuff that I like to receive as a bottom uh-huh. is stuff that like genuinely, if it made it into court would be like dicely legal, maybe, you know, right. because, and it's not because it's the most extreme stuff. It's because most places that, you know, derive their law from like British common law, which includes Australia, still like have the idea that you can't consent to actual harm. Um, And like Uh there haven't been, while there are exceptions that exist in the law for things like boxing or sport or getting a tattoo, there isn't like really clear precedent that says that BDSM or sexual experiences could have the same exemption. Right. So, you know, when, when someone's topping you, they're putting themselves in like a really risky position. Uh of doing something that they believe is mutually desired that, you know, is transgressive and is really vulnerable. And, you know, in a lot of cases, like me, you know, like the useless submissive bottom that I am, I'm like, I just want to do what you want to do. And so it's like, then, you know, you're like (laughs) asking someone to put themselves in like this vulnerable position of expressing to you, like what their desires are and doing them and following through and having enough belief in what they want to give it like expression in the world. It's like a hugely vulnerable position. Uh Um, And it like made me realize that I could ask as many times as I wanted to, you know, like I could read someone's body language. I could look at what they're doing. I could, you know, make judgments as much as like, you know, like like to the cows came out, as we say in Australia, but you know, like I I am still trusting that person to tell me to stop. I am still trusting that person to tell me if this is something they didn't want to do in the first place. I'm still trusting that person to be in a position where they could tell me beforehand if they were getting to a state where they wouldn't be able to say stop. And like that really reoriented how I look at, you know, being submissive um, and how I look at consent in general, where like, you know, there are two parties to consent. It's not about, you know, the initiating partner taking all of the responsibility for ensuring consent in a situation. I think that's particularly true with, like, particularly true with queer relationships. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, there, there is different baggage that's coming into that. And, you know, you can't just, like, take the ideas that might be helpful in, like, the context of relationships that operate under, like, you know, the mainstream patriarchal culture and just like plop that into queer context and sort of expect that that's going to keep making sense or expect that that's going to like keep being a framework that keeps people safe. Anyway, we can like continue chatting about that. That's probably my. <laughs> yeah, that was a great, it's really, well really amazing answer. Thank you. And I think both of us have like, like expressed a lot of similar ideas about that in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like what you said about like the expectations being tied to your gender presentation is like really interesting and telling and like I date so many femmes and like it's like two like feminine queers like 
both of them are just like, look, I found both of them were just waiting for like somebody to take on that role, you know, and, and neither want to because the role is filled with such huge responsibility and vulnerability, like you're saying, right? And eventually I was just like, if I'm going to get laid, like I have to take on that role at some point, you know? And so like I started to become a more initiatory partner, but yeah, I had basically the same experience that you had where I was like, holy fuck, like this is way more vulnerable and terrifying um, than the passive shit that I was doing before. So super relatable, super well said, Stevie. Thank you. Um, I think too, like, I just want to say, can I say one more thing? Yeah, please do. I think like I talk a lot on my Instagram about the concept of like trustworthy consent and how it's like a responsibility if you're going into sexual kink context that you should like know whether or not you can give trustworthy consent and that you learn that not necessarily in kink context, but in how well you consent in other situations, you know, Um, because like we give consent all all of the time. Um, But I think that people can kind of take away from that, that I'm like, oh, you know, like if you, if you, you know, made a mistake in that regard, like if you went along with something that you weren't 100% into, or if you like, you know, didn't ask or check in in ways that you may, like you now judge that perhaps you should have. Like, I, I really think that one of the worst things that happens in the Nexus is that the stakes on all of this stuff Uh just get ratcheted up to like a million. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that just completely erodes our ability to actually like build a resilient and enduring consent practice. It like makes us think that we have to learn it all in one go, like learn all of the rules and like then just do them and everything will be okay. And then like, if something does go wrong, but we followed all of the rules, then we can just like point back to the rules and be like, well, actually it was their fault, you know? And it all becomes about like looking for the survivor, looking for the abuser, looking for whose fault it was, looking for whose fault like it wasn't. And it gets put in this completely binary framework. Um, And like, I just think that that's so unhelpful in most situations. Like there are high stakes, high culpability consent violations that happen. Um, you know, when I was like dating as like someone who was presenting their gender as a woman and I was dating like mostly straight guys, like I got into a lot of situations that like had a decent amount of culpability involved in them, right? But that's not necessarily the majority of situations. Um, and certainly in like, you know, kink contexts, I like, I think everyone is doing stuff that there's not really a guidebook or a rule book for. And I just really do think there has to be like a lot more willingness to, yeah, have hard conversations and like be responsible for what you're doing in those contexts, but also just recognize that like, this isn't something that people know how to do perfectly. Like Mm -hmm. I still learn about this stuff all of the time, you know, like every relationship becomes a new conversation about how you want to do these things, you know, like you might've learned the the things that worked great for one person. They're not necessarily going to work great for the next person. And you know, the idea that we have to get it 100% right all of the time, or like we're literally the worst thing the Nexus can call you, an abuser. Yeah. It's like, I think that's really dangerous. And I think it really undermines people's willingness to take responsibility. For sure. I remember um, way back in the day, I was like a student and I took this training that was intended to train people to do consent trainings, right? Um, so that you could go out and, and train other people to do consent trainings, I guess. Um, and so I was taking this, this course thing and like, I was like, okay, yeah. And at that point I was like, way, I was like really on board with this kind of thing, you know, but I was sort of like, at the end, I was sort of like, well, okay, this is all 
cool and well and good. And, and, you know, that was how I um, pretty much like framed my consent practice at that time, you know, but I was like, okay, but the problem is that like most people like don't do this. They don't, you know, and it, it was really framed as this sort of thing is like, if you uh, don't want to be an abuser, this is how you have sex, you know? And I'm like, okay, but almost no one has sex like this. So what does that actually say then about the gigantic majority of people? Uh Like, are we just saying that like all sex is, is actually just abuse and, and rape? Because if we are, there's basically no difference between that and like the most sort of like fevered, um, uh, statements of the kind of like second wave um, all sex is rape crowd you know uh-huh. uh, which is not what we were trying to do because we were all super like sex positive like fifth right. wave feminists or whatever um, and yeah so I don't know that always like sat really poorly with me and I really do think that there's this thing going on in the nexus a lot of the time where there's it's kind of like um, how can I put this like a zero-sum game um, mm. between like being uh, an abuser or being a survivor and it's sort of like in any interactions um one each person is one of those things but we don't know which one they are yeah. until the wave function collapses or something and and then yeah. and then we find out if the cat's dead or alive you know i love those mixed metaphors that's <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful thing um yeah but yeah um i yeah i kind of just want to say something about this too like basically it's interesting because like, I think this kind of model of consent is like really contractual in the sense that it's like, it's like, it's about like, it's about like creating like something that could like hold up in court, like maybe not literally court, but like the court of like, you know, the nexus, nexus like, court. like on the internet, right. <laughs> Where it's like, I checked off the boxes. Like I asked, I, I did the verbal consent thing. So therefore like, you know, I did my due diligence. Like I can't be accused of anything then. Right. And like, for me with like my PTSD, one of the main fucking issues that I have is like going nonverbal and having a really hard time communicating verbally. And so like, usually when, when, when I would have sexual experiences with queers, it was like the most stressful thing in the world because they kept being like, can I touch your thigh? Can I touch your arm? And I would kind of be like, Hmm, like that's all I could really like, just a weird sort of like kind of nodding, but like not really. Cause like, that's not how I communicate. And that kind of communication really stressed me out. And so I would actually end up getting more triggered in those situations and actually was doing more stuff that I didn't want to be doing, but like the person had checked all the boxes. Right. So like that person, but my body language was not saying yes. Like I was acting super awkward and weird about it. Whereas like I've had other experiences where like the person didn't ask me all those questions, but was like really attuned to my body language, for example. Right. And there was like better consent actually happening there because they were like, it seems like you suddenly went silent. Like, are you okay? Right. So I'm just like, wow, like instead of trying to protect ourselves from this like accusation of like being bad, being an abuser, being scary, like we could actually try to like learn communication skills so that we might actually mm-hmm. try to have sex that is like wanted by everybody involved um, in a sincere way. So totally. And like personally, I okay, why why do freaks need socialism? This is why. <laughs> I don't actually think that consent is like a contractual legal thing like the the theory of the contract right is like the specific thing that relies on these two fully formed basically fictional always dude guys basically like getting together and being like oi like let's come to some agreement in our common interest because our interests aren't shared right right like we have to like negotiate with each other right you know 
scribble this thing up with red pen to like get to some understanding that we're then going to hold each other to aggressively through this written document, which isn't allowed to evolve over time. It's like, I, I can understand why this emerged as it did in like the law around like sexual assault. Right. I understand that. And I don't necessarily think it's like a, a useless concept, but I do think that like, we need to find ways of like thinking about like whether or not people are enjoying sex, you know, whether or not people are experiencing pleasure that go beyond like legalistic framings and that also like take into account the wider material reality. Like someone can verbally consent to something, but like if, you know, the, the consent is being given to, um, you know, like someone who they're financially dependent on because they have a small child and they can't work and this person can work and does have a job that pays for all of the expenses as well as like anything that they might actually just like to have, you know, like, like, can you actually meaningfully say, like, like can you meaningfully sign a contract under capitalism? Like, is an employment contract real? Like, is it, you know, really people coming together and being like, yes, I agree to be exploited in all of these ways. Please feed me. Like, no, it's fucked. And yeah. like, you know, we, we can't really like get to this place where we can be real about what we want and what our pleasure is and what we desire until our fucking needs are met, you know? Mm. Like, you can like try, but it's, and I think the pandemic really brought this home. You know, like the, you see so often in the next idea of like, we're going to like negotiate emotional labor in a way that like, you know, it's just meeting everyone's needs. It's like, fuck, no, you're not. Like, I'm sorry. Like, you can't do that. Like I had, you know, people in my life in, during the pandemic who like, they needed support to survive, you know? Yeah. And like, I don't see it as an option to be like, mm, I'm feeling a little drained right now, mm-hmm. you know, like we have to show up for each other in, in the ways that we have to, and no one is going to be showed up to, to the extent that they need to be under a system that sucks all of our energy and time to create surplus value for capitalists, you know, like. Yeah. And I mean, the world, the world is just really complicated and the relationships between different people are complicated. And like that, that scenario that you just described as a sort of, you know, one extreme sort of like isolated housewife kind of scenario or whatever, but all people are like interdependent on each other in various kinds of ways, you know, although is doing its best to like completely obliterate that, but whatever. Um, and so like, you know, we, we all depend on each other in, in certain ways. And, and so like the idea of these two, like isolated dude men, like uh, negotiating <laughs> or like their, their sheep or whatever, um, you know, isn't, doesn't hold up in the real world, never has whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and I don't know, it, it's interesting too, because like you, you can even see this like very clearly in the way that the Nexus um, negates its own consent rules. Right. Because I'm sure yeah. we've all seen these scenarios where like somebody did literally like check off all of the enthusiastic consent boxes, but then one person comes away from it being like, Oh, but that person was like bigger than me. Yeah. And so therefore like I couldn't really meaningfully consent or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, totally. And that's, you might think that that's an exaggeration, but that's like literally something that happened to someone. Oh. No, you know? Um, yeah. Anyways. No, it's such a thing. And like, you know, people, like the, the idea that like consent is based on like no one having a negative experience and no one getting creeped out. I mean, I'm autistic. I'm just like sometimes creepy. Like, what can I do? Like, you just <laughs> do weird things sometimes. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm fucking autistic. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Stevie's over there like frantically playing with like silly string or whatever. I, 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 like, <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> 
Like, okay, okay. I feel like yeah, yeah. we should move on to our next question. Yeah, because we're we're Sorry, yeah. Tangents, no, excellent tangents. Um, and I feel like we're touching on lots of stuff that we were gonna ask next. So no, I mean, totally. We've already talked a lot about this, so maybe I don't know if um you just want to throw anything extra to this question, but we basically just asked, um, you've mentioned in the past that BDSM community norms and woke norms exist in a really um like with a really uneasy tension. Um and so I think we've covered some of this with the consent question, but can you yeah. can you say anything more about that? Yeah, sure. I think one of the biggest ones is just like this idea of calling people out. Um, you know, if in the process of doing that, you're outing someone as a kingstar and potentially outing specifically what they're into, you know, that is like really not how things have operated in BDSM community. Right. And, you know, like you could say that potentially that's like protecting people who, you know, like were most privileged or, or whatever, whatever it is. But like, I think really where that evolves from is the fact that like what people were doing was legal. What people was doing was like hugely socially taboo. It was gonna like ruin people's lives, you know, if if it became publicly known. And I think in some circles that's like becoming less and less the case, right? Like, you know, in like a queer circle, like if someone's outed as a Kingston, like it doesn't even have any meaning, right? right. But, you know, people do still like have, you know, uh, child custody settlements Absolutely. impacted by, you know, being polyamorous or being kinky or, um, you know, being involved in, like, specific aspects of, like, the BDSM scene. Like, that's, like, absolutely a thing that does happen. Um, and I just really don't see much recognition of that in the Nexus because, you know, like, sort of the way that the call-out is always framed is that, like, you know, b- because of where call-outs evolved from as, like, a tool of, like, you know, uh, like, negating like massive power differentials you know between like a company and an individual right. or like whatever you know like they're always framed in this way that like this person has all of this power that that they could like really get taken down a lot of pegs and still be like basically fine um but you know that's that's not the case with like people's involvement in kink you know like they it, it could have like massive implications for someone um for that to be like publicly known and for that reason, you know, kink communities had structures in place in a lot of, you know, situations to, like, deal with that stuff on an internal basis, you know, uh-huh. like, most kink parties will have, like, you know, will have and enforce their policies around yeah. consent and that kind of thing, but they won't do it in a way that's, like, we're going to publicize the name of this of person course. and, you know, like, they're going to do it in a way that's, like, I've seen it done in a way that's firm and decisive and like not going to fuck around with that because, you know, that's too big a deal, but it's not like this whole public shaming ritual. It's just like a, you're not in the space anymore. Yeah. Non-negotiable. That's actually really interesting. What are those people called again? Those dungeon people that walk around? Dungeon and- masters. <laughs> what are they called? DMs, dungeon monitors. or the, like, Yeah, the yeah. dungeon monitors. Yeah. Like when I first heard about this, I was like, can I just get a dungeon monitor to follow me around in my day-to-day life? Like that sounds amazing <laughs> because like... I- I was like, that's so great. Like, and it's, oh, I, I mean, once the pod starts making more money. Yeah, I should just get a dungeon monitor to follow me around in my day-to-day life. But basically like that's, you know, um, on a past episode, we made this distinction between like intervention and like cancellation, right? And dungeon monitors are yeah. a great example of intervention. Like that's actually how you stop shit by like literally stopping it. Like if somebody calls red, somebody says a safe word and like that's not immediately respected, the dungeon monitor goes in there and they just simply remove the person. And it's a non-negotiable thing. It's like, you literally just did that. You got to go. 
but it's not like they don't have to like follow him home and be like this guy likes feet and yeah. choking and like whatever. yeah and, <laughs> and like post it all over the internet it's like you just literally stop the violence so like i think that that's yeah. such a great example of intervention okay so i guess you're the next question sorry i'm getting excited <laughs> 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 okay, so yo, Stevie, have you noticed um, that the Nexus is simultaneously like really hypersexual and also really prude in weird ways? Is that also something that you've noticed? <laughs> Tell me about your observation. So that will like jump in. <laughs> okay, so I mean, there's stuff like, okay, there's all these different examples of it. Let me see if I could try to think of something off the top of my head. Like, one is that like, Okay, so let's say there's like all this like age gap discourse stuff, right? Where mm. it's like if you date someone who's like three years younger than you, you're you're like a scary like sexual predator. And also, uh, the day you turn eighteen, you could start like an OnlyFans account, and it's like super uh, awesome that you're doing that and like yeah. you know selling pictures of your pussy on the internet or whatever. Um, and and that's that's great and really um, like empowering feminist and empowering and whatever. So that's like one example, you know um others are that like everyone is like super duper like yeah like freaking polyamorous or whatever yeah while simultaneously like often like not not actually like ever having sex or like doing yeah like, being millennials who like just have no sex yeah <laughs> yeah exactly. what we were just saying like about like like on the one hand everybody is like you know putting like like bdsm and like polyamory and all of this like right up on their tinder bios like people are saying like you know what they're into and it's like really freaky but then when they actually get together they're like like barely able to make eye contact and like, can I maybe touch your arm, you know? Yeah. And then, and then like every relationship ends in like a cancellation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm shielded from some of this, just like being in Australia. So like, that's nice. Okay. Um, things like take a while to like, fully like okay. drift over. But I've definitely like seen, like I've definitely observed this like online and that kind of thing. Um, look, I think it just comes from people just don't have like the basics of like, I think things like the Nexus, and I say this as someone who has been attracted to things like the Nexus on many occasions, you know, comprehensive dogmatic belief systems are attractive to people who don't have a strong sense of self. Mm. And if you've been traumatized or you're neurodivergent, or you just didn't have like good, like good attachment relationships to like real caregivers during your childhood, which happens to a lot of people without them having a history of actual neglect or abuse, just because we like, you know, yeah. don't actually have an evidence-based child-focused schooling system, you know? Um, like, you, you can easily grow up without like a stable, like, you know, sense inside you of like what your own like desires are, mm -hmm. what your own, um, you know, values and beliefs are. And, you know, you can get into like all of this dogma. So like, yeah, like, you know, only, only fans is sex works and sex work is good. So it's like, okay, great. But like age gaps is abuse and abuse is bad. And it's like, well, like, you know, like right. that's, it's not actually that simple. Um, I have personally found that being okay with what I'm into sexually, being okay with who I am. I mean, like I, I'm a bit of a weirdo. So yeah, like probably takes a bit longer than people who aren't as weird. Um, but like, it took a really long time. It took like, like, years of like reflection experience uh thinking having different experiences that maybe like teach different lessons um and like maybe now at like 30 i'm like starting to get like a vague sense of that shit and like a vague ability to like actualize it in real life most people in the nexus are like teenagers or in their early 20s um and like you know i think it can take it can be a lot to expect someone at that age to have like this 
you know, fully functional, like, way of like engaging with and expressing all of their different desires and like all of the aspects of who they want to be in the world like that's a big ask but social media like demands that Mm. of you from the moment that you can like sign up for an instagram account at 13 you know like you have to be coherent at all times and like i i think people aren't and that's that's fine to some extent but it's when people start turning that incoherence into like a dogmatic belief system that they then want to start enforcing on other people that like, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's not cool. Um, so I think there's a lot of contradictions in the nexus. Um, and you know, I, I think they come from that primarily. Yeah, totally. Yo, I wanted to ask you one more question about polyamory. Like, okay. Yeah. So we, we touched on this a little bit, but we've noticed that a lot of the like dirtbag left types spend a lot of time making fun of polyamory. Um, also in the nexus, there's a lot of energy spent making sure that polyamory is not allowed to become like an oppressed identity. Um, and I don't know, we like, because you have like a really, um, great tendency to have like these like solid materialist takes on poly on poly on everything. We wanted to ask you about your takes on polyamory, but also like, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier was that, which is that there's, um, this kind of, um, there's sort of like these two takes on the left, I think. Well, there's many takes on the left about polyamory, but I think that there's these two kind of main ones. And one is that it's sort of this like neoliberal conceit. Like it's this very individualistic, like shallow, uh, like degenerate almost like kind of thing um, that these like whatever, like hipster, like identitarians like to get into. Right. And I think that that's like mm. one of the, one of the things that the dirtbag types like really, really get into. And then there's this other take, which I used to be very um, invested in, which is that like, yeah, like, you were saying you as you wrote a paper about it like polyamory is this way to sort of like fight back against um uh against the sort of like alienation of late capitalism and and we're going to like take apart the nuclear family and replace it with these much more progressive structures and stuff like that and i don't know i was wondering where you're at now on that like what do you what do you think does polyamory actually sort of like have a, a a real political um impact or is it just kind of like a personal choice or is it somewhere in between the two or neither? Tell us your thoughts. Yeah, sure. Just to quickly answer that last question and then I'll like unpack my, my working out on this. Um, yeah, I think it does. But I also think that we can never underestimate neoliberalism's ability to like metabolize whatever resistance is thrown uh-huh, out within uh-huh. other like domains, right? right. So, like, yes, but <laughs> right. um, in terms of like the thinking behind that, um, Scholars of neoliberalism, like people who study this stuff, you know, will talk about how, on the one hand, like neoliberalism's rise was accompanied by like an atomization and fragmentation of society. It was like, um, you know, accompanied by like the sexual revolution and the like dramatic transformation of like roles within the family, of the idea of like, you know, sexual and romantic and domestic partnerships that looked really different from how they had previously. Um, but at the same time, we can also see the rise of like the family values camp, um, like uh-huh. almost simultaneously. And they're happening in different parts of society. So people often don't necessarily put them together and like look at them together. But um, I've seen some really compelling analysis that they should be analyzed together. And the reason is because neoliberalism is really about asserting like the enormous primacy of the individual, right? right. That like everything is individual. Everything is about individual choices. Everything is about like, you know, what you do to like, you know, create your destiny and be responsible for your happiness and like actualize yourself in the world as like a consumable, like, you know, Uh market subject, right? Um, Excuse the word subject. (laughs) 
<laughs> Welcome to the Nexus. That um, like on the other, like, like that is vacuous and it's also not real. Like people need care. That's like yeah. an ontological fact. Like that's a fact of life is that we need to be looked after by other humans. Yeah. Someone needs to do that. And so at the same time, we see this real rise of like the idea that the nuclear family is the only acceptable place for that to happen. Right. right? Like people need care, but fucked if they're getting it from the state. Fucked if they're getting it from like child right. care that would be state subsidized. You know, we're not going to let them have it through like generous provisions of universal like welfare and that kind of stuff. We're not going to let them have it through like well-funded public schools that actually look after people's kids. We're going to like let you have it by constantly talking about the idea of the family and like valorizing the family and making it out as though like, you know, the reason that people are in poverty or the reason that people are being mm. like brought into the criminal justice system or the reason that people are experiencing like any other issues in their life is because they don't have like the family, which then like, you know, becomes like this, you know, like the, the place where everyone's needs are supposed to be taken care of. And that relies on the idea of like, you know, some people, usually women, doing huge amounts of unpaid labor. Um, and it relies on the idea that, like, you know, somehow enough money is going to come into the house from somewhere. Right. And, like, over the course of neoliberalism's, like, life, like, we've basically seen the ability of that to happen. Like, you know, it's pretty rare these days for one person to be able to earn enough income to support a family. Simultaneously, it's pretty rare to find, you know, situations where, like, women want to be exploited in those ways anymore um, and, like, will often, you know, like, resist it in different ways. Um, and, like, you know, we had a whole feminist movement about that, right? But, like, that is, like, this really unstable, messy situation that ends up leading to most people not getting their needs taken care of, right? Most people, especially if you're a woman, um, you know, and in, like, a relationship that involves, like, you know, a man and some kids, like it's, it's pretty rare for people in that situation to get their needs met. And then like kids aren't getting their needs met and like everyone is not getting their needs met yeah. because we actually need care from other people. And like, you know, the market is not going to give you that unless you can really pay a premium for it. Um, and polyamory or, you know, any way of structure, like I don't just like to think of it as like people who, you know, identify as polyamorous or whatever, but people who set up networks of care that mm -hmm. exceed the nuclear family, like are doing something that undermines that logic, right? Like they yeah. are asserting that like, I need more care than I can get under the framework that neoliberalism is going to allow me to have it in, right? Like I, you know, want to and deserve and am going to assert my desire for a more abundant life than neoliberalism is going to let me have. And, like, I do think there's, like, radical potential in that. I also think that it has the potential to, like, you know, start doing things like um, raising questions about, you know, the way that we interact with people who aren't our sexual and romantic partners. Like, can we show up for them more? Can we, you know, be there more in, like, some of the ways that have been, like, reserved for, like, you know, within the sanctity of the family kind mm -hmm. of thing? Like, can we, like, expand that care um, in ways that would, like, would challenge that? Um, but at the same time, you know, neoliberalism will just like bring this stuff in and spit it out in this unrecognizable form where it becomes about people consuming care from like, you know, multiple options on the market of relationships, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, like that happens like so quickly, you know, like yeah. people will in the same breath 
assert like this radical vision of expansive care and then like turn around and be like, I'm not getting enough of my needs met in this, you know, like it, it can become like very, you know, individual contract based, um, you know, like even the idea of like emotional labor within relationships as though there's some kind of like employment relation going on there, like, you know, it, it can just so easily get like brought into ways of thinking that just uphold and reinforce neoliberalism. Um, and I, I like, I've kind of come round to thinking that what needs to happen is not like any specific interventions. Like I don't think everyone suddenly practicing relationship anarchy or like, you know, polyamory or whatever is gonna like change the world and bring down neoliberalism. But I do think that if we're able to find ways to bring people into situations where those skills that underlie the ability to act in collective ways can be learned and can be built. Like, I do think there's huge radical potential in that. Like, you know, organizing for a union, doing stuff on Instagram, like all of these things just like make me think like we just don't even know how to act in a collective way. Like we just don't even have the skills. We don't have the conflict skills. We don't have the communication uh -huh. skills. We don't have the secure sense of self and like autonomy. And like, we, we don't have the stuff for the most part that would like actually allow us to have solidarity most of the time because we weren't taught it because yeah. we like grew up in the like defeat and desolation of you know, collectivist solutions. Uh -huh. um, and like, we need to find ways of bringing that back. And I do think that, you know, the way we do our interpersonal relationships can be part of that. Um, but like, you know, also we should have a welfare state. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, Steve. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I kind of like, it, this is like related to all of the brilliant things you were just saying, but like, I'm kind of just curious um, about your thoughts on this because it's, I'm still talking yeah. about the polyamory thing because I kind of just want to ask this. But yeah. basically, like, okay, I think this is interesting, right? Because it's, like, queerness, like, it has been absorbed into, mm. you know, it's already happened, like, to, to a large extent, right? Like, yeah. you know, I'm, like, 34. Like, I remember growing up when, like, homophobia was, like, way more intense than it is now. And, like, people, like, had to be in the closet and, like, whatever. It was, like, a big deal if people came out. And, like, now it's, like you know, obviously it varies from place to place, but it's like pretty normalized and like mm -hmm. you can get married and like blah, blah, blah. They've been absorbed in a lot of ways, but also with that comes, you know, a lot of things that people just generally deserve and everybody should have, like being able to be honest about who you're in love with or like whatever, mm -hmm. being able to like go see your partner in the hospital. Like these are like material things, right? Like for somebody to be yeah. able to go check on their partner in the hospital. And, and to me, it's like very obvious that like polyamory is not there. Um, and for as much as we're all like, like, woo, polyamory, anyone can do whatever they want, like in a very material way, like we're not there because, mm. you know, you can get married to one person. Um, and you know, like if, um, like I think about this, it's like, you know, if, um, if Jay was like unconscious in the hospital and me and their other partner like showed up to the hospital and you're like, oh, it's family only. <laughs> like, what would you, what would you do? Like, they're like, who are you? How are you related to the person? Like, we're like, oh, um, like, and I don't actually know what would happen in that situation, but like, I know that people have been turned away from hospitals for not being family. Um, and you're really technically only to have one partner as family. Right. Um, so I think a lot about that. And like, I have talked to like a number of polyamorous people who are like closeted about being polyamorous, like in their workplace, because they are afraid of the consequences of, of that being found out, but like, they wouldn't be afraid of being open about being gay at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then like all of the stuff around like, how do you like buy a house or like whatever, all of those things that millennials wish that we could worry about, but we're probably not ever going to have that problem. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, all of that to yeah. say, I just think it's funny because in the Nexus, like they really have put a bar on being, on like saying that like, that there's like anything like quote oppressive about being like, that your polyamorous people are not oppressed according to the Nexus, right? And like any attempt to be like, well, there's these issues that polyamorous people face. They're like, you're just trying to like pretend that you're part of the LGBTQ community and you're not, you know? And like, they're just like, and there's like always like a bar because they assume that the only reason you talk about things is just because you're like trying to get oppression points so that you can like, whatever. And, and I'm like, I don't care about that. I don't, I really don't. I'm not trying to put it in my profile, but like, I'm just, yeah. Like I genuinely just like want to be able to have basic rights or whatever. Yeah. But there's a reason why you can't, right? And the reason is because this idea that the state will regulate the care that you can get to within recognizable nuclear family structures. Exactly. Like we saw that in the lockdowns, right? Yeah. Like if you yes. lived yeah. with all of the people who you relied on for care and who relied on you for care, you were fine. And they like made the restrictions in those ways, considering those people. They Our, didn't consider it. Can I just say something super quick? Oh, like yeah. the, the provincial government in Quebec actually issued a statement saying that like during the pandemic, it's pre- preferable to be monogamous. So that was like extremely blatant. You know what I mean? Yeah. They were like, yeah. so fucking freaky, Montreal. Jesus yeah. fucking Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think like, yeah, so a similar statement was put out, like not, not from the government, but like from some like NGO or something to like queers being like, get off grinder, okay? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like when I um like I used to Australia has a welfare state, right? Like we do have like welfare provisions. Um, but uh successive conservative governments have like introduced like all of this policing around like who can access it. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that like the last conservative prime minister brought in was this like idea that you have to like, if you're a single parent and like read th- these people, like always women basically, or people who like, you know, have had that lived experience, um, you know, so they're like, you have to get a friend or some other third party to sign a form about your relationship status. So, so third party verification of your relationship, right? So, in order to get your payments, you have to do this. So, like, you know, you like, like, you can fortunately, when I like got my form, I didn't have my whole like weird complex polyamorous situation going on, right? Right. But, like, imagine if I did, (laughs) like, what's my friend supposed to write? Like, you know, is this person partnered? Like, write some paragraphs about the situation and they're just like what like you know talking about like the time I spend in like BDSM clubs and like this person that I see sometimes but it's only for rope not really for sex like you know like, <laughs> like what the fuck like this is like, such bullshit but like the state intervenes in our relationships in so many ways yeah you know like that people like to think that this is this whole domain of personal choice it's, it's like it's really not yeah um and some people are more impacted by that than others but like, absolutely, it's a thing. It's a, it's a thing with consequences. And, you know, I think the state should get out of that. And I do feel oppressed if the state is all up in that. So, like, yeah. yeah, you know, like totally. it's. Yeah, that's fucking real. <laughs> um, okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm forgetting the order of questions because I, I right. keep jumping in because you're just so, this is so dynamic, Stevie, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay, so. 
Speaking of the of uh, things that the Nexus misses, actually this leads perfectly into what we were just talking about. We wanted to talk about parenting. So the Nexus just totally ignores parenting as a thing for the most part. Like sometimes it might give like a little bit of like a nod to it here or there, but for the most part, it's pretty left out. Um, and so we wanted to ask you about the material and economic realities of parenting um, and the way that the Nexus totally fails to notice or talk about that. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, like I say this partially because like, I think it makes people do a double take, um, but also because it's just been true in my experience. I have experienced more systematic oppression as a parent who like gestated and breastfed and, you know, like birthed than I have as a trans person, like absolutely, hands down. Um, I've experienced more state intervention into my life as a parent than uh, as a trans person um, or than like any other aspect of who I am. Um, and like I, the reasons for that are basically what I was saying before, like the state is not neutral, like neoliberalism and, you know, neoliberal policy projects that have been like ruthlessly enforced over the last 30, 40 years are not neutral to parenting. Like they want it to happen. They want it to happen in these very specific ways. And they don't want it to challenge the idea that like, you know, every individual is sovereign and, you know, maybe at like the, the most generous will be every household is, right? Uh -huh. Like, you know, Thatcher, there is no society, there's individuals and there's families, right? And like, that is neoliberalism. There are individuals and there are families. So what happens if you're a family that has like one person, like one adult and a small dependent child, you know, like under neoliberalism, you're fucked. Uh -huh. Why are you fucked? Because you made bad choices. Like that's, that's about it. And like, maybe we'll like in Australia, we'll like keep you from starving, but like kind of, kind of just that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like not, not much more, um, you know, and there is this huge amount of dependence that is produced when, when you're caring for a child, like, you know, you're dependent on, um, so like Eve Kitai, who's like a, um, a scholar of like, mothering and like a lot of my research is about mothering and, and parenting um talks about the idea of secondary dependency that like if you have someone who's fully dependent on you whether that's like a sick partner or a elderly parent or a small child you know like you are going to become dependent on other people to look after you because uh -huh. you are putting all of your energy into caring for the person who's dependent on you and it's not a relationship of consent. You know, this is no, like, I didn't sit there and negotiate with my five-year-old about like, I've done too much emotional labor for today. Right. It's about time you started pulling your weight. You know, like, that's just not how it works. Yeah. You give and give and give and you get exhausted and then you give some more because like, I care. And that is like the nature of that relationship. Yeah. It's an attachment relationship. It pulls that stuff out of you biologically, you yeah. know? Um, and To acknowledge that or to admit that, to recognize that in the like entirety of, of the like just how vulnerable so many people are really undermines the, the foundational idea of neoliberalism that we're all these like individualist little dude bros making contracts with each other, right. you know, from this state of complete autonomy and empowerment. Because we're not, most of us aren't. But if you allow that reality in, well, then it's like, well, fuck, why aren't we meeting people's basic needs? You know, like why aren't we? Why aren't we making sure that every kid should have food in the house? Every kid should have a good school to go to. Every kid should have a parent who like doesn't have to also parent and also work, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, but 
Yeah, sorry, Gary. Yeah, I don't know. I think that that leads us to our, our next question really excellently, which is just that uh, how well how would socialism help working parents concretely? By by meeting people's needs, you know, like money. Yeah. Parenting is a job. It should be remunerated. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, you know, and I've done some fucking weird shit. Like, and but, but <laughs> <laughs> parenting is like the hardest thing I've ever done. It's work, you know. It's um, it's something that that needs remuneration. And I don't necessarily like, you know, like what that would look like. I could imagine like a whole bunch of different proposals. But like in socialist countries in the past, we never learn about this because we don't learn about the history of socialism. But like in socialist countries, women who stayed home with children have had a history of being remunerated for that as actual labor, like as actual work, paid a wage, given time off, you know, <laughs> like had it recognized fully as work. And like that is a reality that we could live in, you know, but we like we, we can't even imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fucking crazy to me. Even the idea that like, you know, someone who just had a baby and everything is expected to like go and get like a stroller and get like a crib and get shoes and get like all of these things or like they're supposed to have family that gets that for them, I guess, as well. Um, But like, if you don't have that, then like you would basically have to get all of that stuff. And I'm like, I don't understand how this person is supposed to have the time or the money to get all of the fucking shit that you need for like a small human being. It's like so much stuff, you know? Um, It's crazy to me. And then also do everything else, let alone like, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And none of it's cheap. Yeah. (laughs) Like I'm like the fact that that stuff isn't free. I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And if you can't get it for any of the like lots of reasons that you just wouldn't be able to, you're like negligent. You can have your fucking kids taken away and everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, in like the research that I do about like mothers and incarceration, like I came across like an, an actual case where a, a woman living in poverty in Australia stole a stroller in the first week of her kid's life. She just took a stroller. Um, and like, you know, that brought her in contact with the criminal justice system. Sure, he had like, you know, some degree of like, you know, experience in that that world. And obviously that's going to count against you. Um, and like, you know, she spent months away from her baby because of that. That's so fucking insane. And the idea that we can't understand collectively that it is a crime, like collectively, like that the government is committing a crime by not providing that woman with a stroller is insane to me. Like it's completely fucking insane because that's like, yeah, I can't actually wrap my mind around that. So that's fucked up. Um, okay, so we're coming to we're coming close to the end. We're going to try to wrap it up because we have been going on and on and on, but we got a couple more questions for you. So um, you think a lot about spirituality. So can you tell us about spirituality as a human need um, that the left is often in many contexts anyway, um, neglecting to sort of address as a human need? Yeah. That's a really tough question. We're just going to throw that at you right now. Yeah, I know. Right. Like, (laughs) Um, I think like the, one of the best places to start with this is sort of one of the things that Jay was like riffing on when it was, when they were talking about like Zoom witches and, um, like on the last episode about like alienation and like how we just live in this world where, you know, we are so alienated from any kind of like collective rituals, collective Mm -hmm. 
forms of meaning, collective ways of like mocking important things. Like I, it comes to mind like often that like people like in our like nexus world, you know, like change a whole gender about themselves. And we don't have like collective ways of like mocking that and acknowledging that and like creating like space and like, you know, ritual and like meaning around that. It's just like, you know, people just have to figure out what they want to do about it on this very individual level. Um, And like, I, I don't think that's good for people, you know, like we are people who who want to believe something you know we Mm -hmm. want to have beliefs we want to have you know um a sense of working towards something that's bigger than ourselves um and I think we have ceded that space to you know organized religion on the right um that will like let people feel some relief from the alienation of capitalism and from the terrifying reality that this planet is like not okay um and, you know, like I, in my early 20s, this is not anybody into much, but like I, you know, went on this whole spiritual journey and like converted to Orthodox Judaism and like <laughs> lived as an Orthodox Jew for a while, like an actually collectivist society. Um, and, you know, part of, I think, I did that for a lot of reasons, you know, it would have been just helpful to maybe come out as trans and accept that I was kinky. Um, <laughs> rather, than, rather than do all of that, um, but I didn't, whatever. <laughs> um, but, like, part of the reason for that was because, like, you know, what what is, like, like, what is the option for someone growing up in, like, a society that, like, has this deep alienation at its core? Like, what is that option for having a meaningful life? If you don't know about socialism, you don't know about, like, you know, what has, like, happened to us collectively. And, you know, like, even if you do, like, even now... I still feel like it's so hard to actually like maintain that hope and to maintain that ability to have raised expectations or alone to raise other people's expectations because we don't have a framework for reinforcing that and for experiencing that. You know, I sometimes like listen to like union songs from like the early 20th century mm-hmm. and they're like so fucking radical. And I mean that in like the deepest way. They're all like about like embodiment and like, you know, the like body of like, you know, working people and like our collective sense of embodiment. Like it's like, it's so powerful. Like there was a spirituality behind mm-hmm. this stuff. There was like this real deep powerful sense of togetherness and like meaning that like you know people people like had around the left and I think that that has just been allowed to really fall away and now you listen to that and like on a first reaction you might think this like kitschy and weird but like I think we need to find new versions of that and we need to find them outside of the nexus yeah because the nexus does offer people that right it does offer people this kind of like you know spiritual system and like way of thinking about everything right it's a it's a totalizing worldview Mm -hmm. but it's not a good one it's inconsistent yeah and it doesn't lead to good outcomes for people it's so interesting what you what you just said at the beginning of that that i've never really thought about that before but it's so true that like yeah like someone can change their entire gender and there's no like ritual to mark that or anything like that or but it doesn't even have to be something like changing your gender you know it could be like um, having completed like a couple years of working at the same place or, you know, even like having a kid or something like that, you know what I mean? Um, which like in any sort of like functional, like, like smaller scale society would like absolutely have some sort of like ritual or life stage or something like attached to it, you know? Um, but we basically have like, um, seeded all that to like the market basically or at least like we think of a lot of these things through the lens of sort of like a consumer choice you know like um, if you yeah. do like change your gender it's basically like an aesthetic thing 
um and then you change you change your fucking like uh pronoun on, on twitter or something like that you know whereas like in reality it's such a, like intensely embodied and important kind of like like wild thing that that you might be doing you know um it's like super super interesting to me to think about that and i don't know it it's making me thinking it's making me think about how like yeah like the nexus does offer um validation about those things because like really what you would be seeking in something like a religious ritual or something to mark like a life stage um is is validation from your community right your like direct community but but the nexus kind of offers it in this weird fucking like feed like this drip you know of validation from like strangers this sort of like pseudo validation (laughs) or something um instead of like a a real and authentic um, um, circle of care from like your actual loved ones in your actual life mm-hmm. who actually share some sort of like real feeling about you you know it's all very yeah, it's com- bleak and matrixy uh, it's completely vacuous it's completely empty like I had my kid in the context of living in Israel as an orthodox Jew like believe it or not fun fact um, and like there's a lot wrong with that society there's, there's many many things wrong with that society but when I had my kid everyone on my street came to our house with food and I, I had my kid at home. I woke up the next day and, you know, all those things you were talking about, Clementine, the, stro- the stroller, Clementine. <laughs> I oh, love no, that I'm I've Clementine. Done it. I've done it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, sorry. Keep I knew going. it was going to come out. But all of those things you, um, you were talking about, like the stroller, the car seat, boxes of clothes for the first year. Um, you know, like none of it was new. It was all stuff that other people's kids had used. Right. But, like it was in my living room when I woke up on the first day of wow. having my kid was there along with like food for a week and people kept coming back every day with more food like we didn't cook for a month you yeah. know and like you shouldn't of course not <laughs> but like you know and and a lot of religious communities will do that like they have like all kinds of like you know bullshit stuff going on in a lot of cases but like in terms of that actual material care and that validation and that recognition that something important has happened that important changes happened they can really show up to give that um and you know i think we cede so much ground if we don't find ways of actually doing that for people in in our world and in our you know communities absolutely yeah so stevie um give us your thoughts on the america centrism and the nexus and why it's so fucking annoying Oh my gosh, why don't I even start with this? Oh, like, you, yeah, I talked about it a lot on Instagram and stuff, so I just wanted to give you a chance to rant about it on the, on the air. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, so Australia is a whole other country. We, <laughs> we exist, we, we, we are a country, there are other countries, um, but we don't have Clementines. Um, <laughs> but you know, we have like, we, do, we don't have Clementines, we have Mandarins, um, and we also have like a whole different set of race relations. Um, you know, like we have a whole different politics, a whole different history. Um, and there are actually a lot of other countries that, that are similar in that way. But they don't have U.S. history. They actually have their own history that has been locally generated by people living in, in that, that area. Um, and I just think that, like, you know, it's funny that like that, that is completely missed. You know, like the idea that we should be learning about racism from like people in the U.S. of all places. You know what I mean? Like Australia is a really fucked up racist country. Like, absolutely. We're, like, one of one of the worst. Like, I lived in Israel. And, like, <laughs> I'm telling, like, you know, like, we, we were a really racist country. Um, but our racism does not look like racism in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, this, like, the flattening that happens on social media of political issues into, like, this, like, tired and static nexus analysis 
like framework. It's like, you know, it's like a, it's like a worksheet that you would get in school or something like that, you know, where it's just like fill in the blanks. The oppressor is, the oppressed is, uh-huh. it's because of the color of their, you know, like, and just <laughs> right. like fill in all of the gaps. And like, you could just like put that into any country and apparently understand geopolitics. It's like, no, you can't, that's not how it works. Um, and one of the reasons that I find it really, I guess, like beyond just like personally being paved with it, I feel that it undermines and negates local struggle. Um, like most unionists in Australia know more about what happened in Bessemer, Alabama, at that Amazon workshop, work, work, what is it called? Warehouse. warehouse. Um, you know, I can speak. Um, in that Amazon warehouse, than they do about, you know, like the Coles strike, which Coles is like one of our big supermarkets that happened like last year, you know? Right. Like they they yeah. don't even like know our own labor history that's going on right now as we speak because you know where people are getting their information from are these sources that like you know push front and center everything that's happening in the u.s um and if that's what's happening it can give you the view if you're outside of the u.s you're a spectator in politics rather than a potential agent Uh of your own politics. And that is so dangerous, you know? Like, that is so dangerous. If people are, like, identifying more with, like, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Biden and, like, all of these people who are, like, you know, none of them are going to fix anything in Australia, you know? Like, none of them are going to make this country less racist, this country less equal, make it so they don't have to fill out bullshit forms to, like, access, like, basic sustenance as a single parent, you know? Like... Yeah. No one's going to do that um, from the States. And you just lose sight of what's actually happening where you are. Yeah. Totally. Yo, can I just say something on that note? When I was yeah, walking right, down right. the street the other day, I saw this graffiti that someone had written. And it's like, it's like, execute Fauci, Fauci, Fauci. I don't know. Um, and I was just like, who, what the fuck is this person? So I like looked it up and like, I think it's Fauci. I don't know. Americans might get mad at me. But anyways, I think it's Fauci. Um, he is like the American like covid covid doctor guy yeah and like there's like graffiti i know this we all saying to like execute him and i'm just like what the fuck is gonna we live in a fucking completely different country like what, what are you talking about yeah. what? like what anyways yeah i don't know i was just like that's yeah. wild you know like i heard you know even something like being stoked about but bernie sanders is like one thing you know but when you're like getting that into sort of like the like weird like ins and outs of american like health policy i was just like fuck man like, yeah, read, yeah a fucking, totally. read a fucking French newspaper, man. Yeah. Okay, well, um, this is uh I this is definitely the longest interview that we've ever done on fucking canceled. So I mean, I'm loving it. Um, but we're about to wrap up, but we just wanted, I think it leads really well into our um our last question, which is just like since since you're in Australia, like do you want to tell us a bit about the state of organized socialism in Australia or like what's going on with you guys over there? Generally speaking. (laughs) It's not great. (laughs) It's not great. Um, We have a neoliberalized labor party that is um, like a lot of actual organized labor is affiliated to that labor party. So like a lot of the unions are affiliated to that labor party, but then they're like really deeply neoliberal and like haven't been asserting like a left-wing policy agenda for like my entire lifetime. Um, there are some like, you know, socialist parties and that kind of thing, um, but they're small and, you know, they're they're not, there aren't really unions affiliated to them and they are like quite busy fighting one another is my 
impression. Um, there's a Greens party that is prosecuting to a certain extent a left-wing agenda. Um, and because of like just the fact that the Labour Party has vacated the field on like so many issues, you know, they've also become the party that have like, you know, proper left-wing stances on like the criminal justice system okay. or like the welfare state or that kind of thing. It's pretty bleak. Um, Australians tend to be, and I'm like not a good example of this, but like we can be quite apathetic um, and, and let a lot slide. Um, and we also do have like historically built in the protections that previous Labour governments mm. have provided. Um, so yeah. things like we do have like a, a healthcare system that covers everyone, you know, like we do have like, you know, a, a, a set of rights at work that are, are far exceed what people in, in, you know, the US, for example, might enjoy. Um, but I think that unfortunately, because there just hasn't been like a prosecution of a left-wing agenda that's like kept up with where we are now. Um, mm -hmm. Those provisions have just been able to erode and erode over time. And I really hope that we are getting into a point where, and I hope that this is sort of part of what I can be involved in with the union movement, uh, a point at which we're starting to realize that like this, this erosion has led to a reality that, that, that shouldn't exist. Um, and that we need to look to new political structures. We need to look to like, a different way of doing our organizing but like yeah i'm not part of any like organized socialist groups um other than the union that i'm part of you know like there's yeah it's yeah. pretty grim yeah a lot of them are pretty grim yeah it's too bad you know and when i was uh you know briefly affiliated with a certain socialist group here in in quebec i uh you know i was pointing out to them at a certain point that like practically everyone I know and like so many millennials and, and younger people actively consider themselves to be left-wing, um, sometimes very left-wing, you know, and none of them are part of a socialist group, uh -huh. you know? Um, and like, why is that? Like, how can we like change that state of affairs? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky question that I hope that someone is gonna start answering soon because uh, we're running out of time, but uh, yeah. Totally. I think it's it's just that we, we really, I think, have the left has vacated the field and it's led to the, the loss of the skills of doing collective work. But I think that things are getting desperate enough that people are starting to realize that it's urgent. I hope I, like, so. I do, I do think that's happening. And I, I do think, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, but you, you pointed to one of them, which is that, yeah, like, I mean, Quebec is similar in some ways um, to what you're describing, where we had mm -hmm. very left wing governments for like a long time, you know. Mm -hmm. um and they built in you know like we have like pretty great like uh renters laws for example like it's like fucking impossible to kick out a tenant in quebec you know um, yeah right. and like stuff like that you know and and we had at one point a very robust healthcare system but a lot of these things um have just been gutted like like death by a thousand cuts though you know yeah um they just cut like a couple hundred million here and a couple hundred million there for fucking 40 50 years and what you're what you end up with is like a healthcare system that like is you know if you have you know if you if you break your hip like they're gonna give you a new one you know or like heal you or whatever and if you have cancer you're gonna get chemo but yeah, but, but if you like need anything else it's like fucking like so difficult and like don't get me wrong i would not ever trade in what we have for like a privatized healthcare system like not in a fucking million years but it's been made so like unwieldy and just like like uh just underfunded you know yeah, by, by decades of austerity that it's just like a joke now and i think that it is getting um to the point where enough people are sort of like what what even is going on with this that that i hope some people will start sort of like like waking up to that you know yeah and like you know if you have cancer 
you know, you're, you're, you're saying like, you know, you'll get treatment or whatever, but it's like, you first have to fucking find out if you have cancer and it takes two months to get a biopsy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, you know, that's not very helpful because you're supposed to treat these things quickly. And if it's that difficult to actually get into an appointment, to like get, like, I'm like, that's not fucking healthcare. Like, to me, that's such a joke that we are calling that healthcare. Like, obviously, it's better than what the United States has. But again, like, that's a weird fucking bar to be like, you know, like, we're not in as... We're not as bad as the worst possible yeah, idea like ever. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is what, like, one of the consequences of, like, you know, this American centrism. Like, why yeah. are we comparing ourselves to Sweden? I'm going to go compare myself to Sweden, damn it. Like, yeah. you know, like, why is the U.S. the bar? Like, just yeah. they speak English? Like, what's the deal with that? I don't, I don't get it. It's really weird. And I feel like I'm in a situation where, like, I'm constantly being reminded to be grateful that for, like, what we do have. And I'm like, no, man, two months for a fucking biopsy appointment is absurd. It's like we should be in the streets about that kind of thing. Like, that's disgusting. It means that people are dying unnecessarily. You know, so I'm just like, what the fuck, man? Yeah, and the provincial government here in Quebec just uh, cut, I, I believe it's $150 million out of the healthcare budget, again, you know, right mm-hmm. after a fucking gigantic right. pandemic. And and their excuse is basically they're like, oh, well, we've really advanced the, like, uh, the, the zoom technology shit. So we could do lots of like, uh, oh, like um, remote doctoring now. So we don't really need as many, you know, uh, as much resources like in the healthcare system. It's like, it's horrifying. What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is horrifying. genuinely horrifying. Yeah. Um, well, on that extremely depressing note, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So before we just totally wrap up, we wanted to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can find you, how they can support you, how they can hear about the work that you do in the world. Or not. Sure. As the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can you can find me on Instagram. It's not my work though. And I think this is like something that I'm just like having to be really real about. Like my work at the moment is not really like for public consumption. Like I'm mm-hmm. like organizing workers at a specific site. Like I'm doing most of my most meaningful work for socialism in those conversations with those people, you know. Yeah. Like that's that's what I do. That's my work. And when I'm not doing that, like I'm writing a thesis that hopefully will like to some extent make a difference, you know? We 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 dream these dreams, but like we do. Um, eh, really? Well, <laughs> who knows? Look, I'm having fun. Um, but you know, if you want a, like a, a taster of my weirdness, I can be found at, at underscore Stevie writes, um, at Instagram. I have a Patreon. If you want to like buy me a coffee, that'd be rad. I like occasionally post problematic consent videos on there. Um, or, like other random writings. Um, and yeah, you know, that's, that's me. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Stevie. Yeah, honestly, so like, cool. wow. Longest interview on fucking canceled yet. So, fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm really awkward about that, but okay, cool. I'm going to embrace it. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Oh, it's so good. Such yeah. a good interview. Thank you so much. And yeah. You're welcome. And Thanks for having me on. I also wanted to say, I never said it. I just wanted to say that Stevie's a friend of the pod. Stevie is a friend of the pod. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Like, I, I want a badge. <laughs> <laughs> or a tote bag. <laughs> Socialism with freaky options. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Stevie. Yours. Bye.